If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them to the Old Testament book of Esther, the Old Testament book of, uh, of Esther. Uh, if you can get to the Psalms and go to the left a little bit, you will find it, Esther. Uh, last Sunday, we began a series on uh, this incredible uh, historical book found in the Old Testament. It's a very unique book in that you go through all the chapters, all ten chapters, and the word God is never mentioned. There's not one miracle that takes place in this book. Yet, throughout this whole book, you see God's hand constantly moving throughout it. And we have uh, taken a series, and we have entitled it, It's Hidden, Not Hiding. And uh, it's pointing out God's providence and that there are times in our lives to where we are praying and we're seeking God and we're asking Him for things, and it just seems like we don't get any answers. And, and the more we seem that we pray, we, we wake up, we think there's going to be this aha moment, this loud shout from heaven, this visitation of, of an angel or something that's going to say, hey, this is your answer. And we keep waiting for this answer, but yet it, it doesn't seem like it comes. But then there's another person who may be in my same Sunday school class or lives in my same neighborhood that they come back and they say, oh, we've been praying for a couple of weeks and God just opened it up and the heavens opened and it was so clear, this answer to what we've been praying for and everything just fit together and we just praise God. And you're sitting there thinking, you know, I keep doing this and I just get stone cold silence. And you've been praying for two weeks. I've been praying for two years. I don't understand this. And there's a tendency for us to think, well, either there's not a God or he just doesn't really care about me and he's just hiding from me. What Esther is is an incredible book that talks to us about the providence of God and reminds us that God at times will be hidden, but he's not hiding. And while maybe we don't see him or hear him all along this time, he is hovering over every situation. He has his hand, and his hand is moving things and placing things in the particular place that they need to be in order for him to achieve his greatest glory and to work for your good. And we don't see it, but yet over time, he reveals that to us. So he's hidden, but he's not hiding. And so one way of looking at it, we used a phrase last, uh, last Sunday of saying that God is omnipotently present even when God is conspicuously absent. God is omnipotently present even when God is conspicuously absent. He is always present. He seems absent. I don't know where he is, but we need to know that he's present. You say, well, how do you know that? It is all throughout this book of Esther. And it's just an amazing historical story of the providence of God. And so what I'd like to do is we did this uh, last Sunday, and I know all of you were here last Sunday. Is that correct? Yeah. Those that laughed were not here. Thank you. All right. You've given yourself up. But we know that people come and go, and so we want to give you a quick overview of what we did last Sunday. It's going to be really fast. It's going to be a race through history on a timeline. So you've got to be ready. You've got to listen, and we're going to fly with it from here. Number one, starting out, 597 B.C. In 597 B.C., uh, Israel is being attacked by this new Babylonian empire. They came, and, and they began to take some people, and they uh, took them from Jerusalem and sent these captives over to Babylon, and they began to pull some of the 
the, uh, the folks out of Jerusalem and some of the cities and took them to Babylon. In your Bible, you think about Daniel and, uh, and you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all of those. Those were young guys that were pulled out around 597. Then all of a sudden you come to 587, and 587 is when Babylon completely took over Jerusalem. They sacked the city, they tore up the city, they burned everything, and then they brought more people over to Babylon. And so all of a sudden, you've got uh, the Babylonian Empire, which is rocking and rolling, and they're doing, uh, they're doing really good. Well, then you've got 538. Did you live up 538? 538 B.C. It's just a fit right here. Is what happened is Babylon got defeated by Persia. And all of a sudden, you've got the Persian Empire, who is number one. And so the Persian Empire, when they took over, they said... If you are living over here and you'd like to go back to Jerusalem, you can do that. So some of the people went over to Jerusalem, tried to rebuild the walls and the temple. Others stayed in Persia, all right? So they took over, 538, and in 490 B.C., uh, there was a king, King Darius, and what King Darius did was he wanted to destroy Greek, Greece. He had an empire that went from Libya all the way to almost India. You could just picture that. But there's this one section, Greece, that he did not conquer. And so he had a desire to go conquer them. And when he tried to go there, he went and he fought the battle of what we know as Marathon. And he took a terrible defeat. He came back home and he was all upset in 490 BC. Well, after he died in 485, his son came and took over, and that's Xerxes. In your scripture, when you read, it's like Ahasuerus uh, uh, is his name. That's too hard for me. So that's one name. The other name is Xerxes. We're going with Xerxes. So what happens? Xerxes becomes the Persian king. Well, Xerxes is the Persian king, but what he wants is he wants to avenge the loss to the Greeks. And so he's made it in his mind. He says, we've got to put together a coalition to go and defeat Greece. So what happens? 483 B.C., when you get to 483 B.C., he holds a six-month summit, brings people from all 127 provinces. They come, and as they come together, they are putting together a military option to go to Greece. At the end of that six months, they then have this seven-month feast of seven months, seven week, seven day. What is it? Month, week, day, seven days. Seven-day feast. And so you do six months, and then all of a sudden you come down to seven days. When you get to seven-day feast, it's just a drunken orgy. And when you read about it, it says, hey, they can drink as much as they want to. And at the end of those seven days, the king, inebriated, bragging about his power and all his position, he says, get the queen out here, Queen Vashti. She's the most beautiful woman in all the, all the provinces. And let her come and let all the guys oogle her and, and, and just look at her and all that stuff. Well, Queen Vashti, she'd had enough of all the drunken orgy. And she says, I'm not coming. He says, oh, yeah, you are. She says, oh, no, I'm not. Well, he'd never had her tell him no before. He didn't know what to do. So he got his guys together and says, what do we do? And they panicked. They said, uh-oh, if the queen tells you no, that means that every man out of all the 127 provinces is going to be in big trouble because anything they ask their wife to do, the wife is going to say, hey, the queen doesn't have to listen to the king and I don't have to listen to you. So they were all nervous. So you know what they did? They put together an edict and they said, the queen, you're out of here. You lost your position. You're gone. And they made this edict saying that every woman needed to respect her husband. What a lovely day that was for those families when that edict came through. So it came through. She's out of a job. Well, she's out of a job. He's heading out of there to go fight against Greece. So what happens is you then come to 479, uh, uh, yeah, 479 BC and 480, excuse me, 480, you get the Battle of Thermopylae. And at Thermopylae, 
it is where, if you ever saw the thing about the 300 Spartans fighting the battle, this is where they fought. 300 men held off the Persians for a number of days. Persians lost a lot of people, but finally they pushed through. But the bravery of the Spartans energized the Greeks. And when this next battle came, the Battle of Salamis, where the big Persian navy came up to fight the Greek navy, the Greek navy defeated them. And when they defeated them, it was done. And Xerxes comes back home and he tucks his tail. And all of a sudden, he's at 479. He has returned home. And now he says, I got to get a queen. So he's got to do a search for a queen. They have a beauty contest that goes over all 127 provinces, bring all these different ladies in. They narrow it down to who gets the most favor. And the one that got the most favor was a girl by the name of Esther. But before you hear that, you get introduced to her cousin who's named Mordecai. And Mordecai, his family back in 597 BC, they traveled all the way over. They were pulled out and were brought to Persia. And that's where they lived. And it was grandparents and, and each generation. Then there was him. And then there was this girl named Esther who her family came over, but her parents died when she was young. So Mordecai, her cousin, said, I will help raise you. And so there's Mordecai and there's Esther. You got it? And they're both Jews. He's raising her. And they said she was a beautiful woman. And so when they came around looking for people to be in the contest, they came, they grabbed her. And for one year, she gets to fix herself up and get beautified. And then she goes in, spends that time with the king. And then he makes his decision. And he decided that Esther should be the queen. And so, Esther is the queen. That's just amazing. She's an orphan Jewish girl. And uh, being raised by a cousin. And today, she sits on the throne as the queen of the most powerful nation, empire in the world at that time. Nothing miraculous happened. It's just God working through all these ordinary events. And that's where the second statement is that we made. And the second statement is that miraculous outcomes can come through ordinary events. Miraculous outcomes can come through ordinary events. And we need to understand about God's providence and that God's hand, as he moves over things, he doesn't need to split the Red Sea. He doesn't need to have water to come out of a rock. He doesn't need you to be in a lion's den and shut the lion's mouths for you to say, oh, this is really God working. What God does is he takes ordinary events and through that can craft it so that there are miraculous outcomes. And that is what happened with Esther. So when we left this story, it was kind of at a, at a high peak. This is good stuff. She's the queen. Things are going good. Well, when you get to chapter 2, verse 19, it gets even better. Look at this, verse 19. He says, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Don't miss that. He was sitting at the king's gate. What's the king's gate? The king's gate was this large building, like a central meeting area that would lead in to the palace area, okay, to where the king was. So as you're going down the street, you've got this government administration building, this huge, large hall. And in that building is where commerce would take place, legal things, court matters would take place, all in this area. And it says that Mordecai was sitting at the gate, which means he was a court official. And so he's got this good position. Some people believe that Esther may have appointed him to that. Hey, she's the queen. If she suggests someone, they're going to go with them. So Mordecai's got this great job. He's working there with the government, working there in the courts, and it seems like everything's going great. And she has continued to not tell anybody that she's a Jew. 
And that was one of the things Mordecai said when they did the beauty contest. He said, don't tell them you're a Jew. Don't let them know. So she didn't let them know. And she still hadn't let them know. King still doesn't know. No one else knows. Then in verse 21, in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and they sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. Now, there are different positions to hold, but when it says here at the threshold, it means it's like the doorway to his private apartment, to the king's apartment. These are the two guys that are guarding his apartment, and they are plotting among themselves to kill the king. Don't know why. It could be. They may have been fans of Queen Vashti, for all we know, and they didn't like the way it was handled with her, and so they say, you know what? We're going to take him out. Well, Mordecai, who's working in that area, overhears it. And when he overhears it, this is what he says. Verse 22. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. He told it to Queen Esther. Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. So they found out. Their plot was uncovered. The king had them both hanged on the gallows. And then you get to verse 23. At the very end of it, it says, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. What the king had is he had a a booklet of like daily uh, affairs that went on, the memories, the activities, things that took place. And they would put these in this, chronicle this in this book. And they would always make note of the benefactors, the people that did good things to the kings. During those days, kings kind of lived a kind of scary life because people were always trying to take them out. So what he did was he would always put in this book people that did good things for them. And when you would get your name in that book, then the king would usually come back quickly and reward you generously for doing something like this. But it says in here, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So it's all written in the book. And so when you end chapter 2, your first thought is, you know, things are going pretty good right now. Esther's queen. She's doing good. Mordecai, he's got a good job there in the court. He just foiled a plan for the assassination of the king, and he got his name written in the book, and I got a feeling that I'm going to get rewarded generously. And then you get to chapter 3, and your first thought is, oh, good, what are they going to do for Mordecai? But that's not what happens. In chapter 3, we get introduced to a man by the name of Haman, a very, very bad man, okay? (laughs) And uh, he is he's not a good man at all. And you see in, verse, in chapter 3 of verse 1 where it says, After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of a big name with an H, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So this is a guy, a Persian guy, that was coming up through the ranks, and uh, Xerxes liked this guy, and he chose him, and he says, You're going to be like my number two in command. And so Haman was the number two guy in command. And it says, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman for the king had so commanded concerning him. So Haman, in all of his ego and pride, most likely talked to the king and said, hey, you know, I need to get a little uh, homage due to me. I am the number two guy. 
why don't we do this thing where everybody bows to me when I come walking in? So when he, when he drives up to work and then he walks in to this king's gate, which is the big large building that will then take him into the, into the, um, uh, into the king's area over here, everyone that's working there, they are to pay homage to him. They are to bow down to him. It's just like here when Scott Heath comes in, uh, you know? When Scott comes in and all the staff, they bow down. Oh man, it's just, it's sickening really. But, uh, but no, it's, it, this is, this is what is supposed to happen. Everybody's supposed to bow down to him. But then at the end of that verse two, it says, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Mordecai didn't bow down or pay homage. Okay. This, this is so, this is so cool. Cause this is just like, a, this is just like your workplace. Everybody else is sitting there, and they're having to do this thing, and Mordecai doesn't. So what do you do if you're working someplace? You go talk to Mordecai and say, hey, kind of get in with the program. Everybody does the bow thing when he comes by. It's an edict. The king says we're to do it. You're not doing it. I mean, I, I saw you the last couple of days. It's not like you had a bad back or anything. Uh, I'm just saying that you're, you're choosing not to do this. And we're encouraging you, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. Well, look what he says. Verse 3, the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? This is over and over and over. So finally in verse 4, and when they spoke to him day after day, a bunch of times, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. So we don't know what all he told them, but the only thing they put in here was when they said, hey, why don't you bow down? He says, because I'm a Jew. Now they go back around the water cooler and they're going, hey, what's this deal about him getting out of the bowing thing because he's a Jew? The Jews don't have to do this thing? I don't think it's fair personally. I don't think it's fair at all. I wrinkle my tunic every time I bend over and it just makes me mad. And, um, but now him, he doesn't have to. And why is that? Because he says he's a Jew. When do they get special privileges on that? Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we just tell uh, Haman about it? So they go to Haman. And they're going, hey, Haman, we're just trying to figure this out. We love you, okay? And, um, and it is an honor for us to bow and pay homage to you when you come in. But there's a guy named Mordecai that never does it. And he says the reason he doesn't is because he's a Jew. Do they get exceptions and exclusions? We're just asking. We're not wanting to make waves. Yeah. We're just asking. Well, it's interesting because in the passage, you pick up that Haman never noticed it. Ah, there's so many guys bowing. You know, if one guy you miss. But in verse 5, it says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Well, all of a sudden, next time he comes through, he's kind of got his eyes. He's looking at everybody's bow, and he's checking this Mordecai over here, and he doesn't bow. Hmm. I'm going to guess he came back the second day. And when it didn't happen, he realized this is a pattern. And it says that he was angry. That word means he was filled with fury. He had so much power, so much ego, so much pride that it just chapped him. And he wanted to do something about it. When we read verse 6, you're going to think this is some kind of overreaction. He says, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. 
So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. That's 127 provinces spanning from Libya to India. And he says, every Jew, those that went back to Jerusalem, those who are living in Israel, every Jew everywhere, wipe them all out, along with Mordecai. And see, some of you would look at that and say, that may be a tad uh, overstep of being upset. But you don't know the history. Oh, this is what's incredible. You're so glad you're here today. Um, Almost a 1,000 years before that, the children of Israel are in Egypt. And they've been over there over 400 years in captivity. They're crying out to God and saying, God, please come. And all the time, they're thinking that God is over here and that, uh, and that, that he's hiding, but he's not. He's hidden, but he's not hiding. And then he, he comes to Moses and he sees Moses. There's the burning bush and, and uh, God calls him and says, you're to lead the people uh, out of Egypt and we're going to take them in the promised land. And so he goes over there. The 10 plagues happen. They get to the Red Sea. The Red Sea splits. They go across and the Egyptians come and it covers them back up. And then they're walking through the wilderness. And, and as they're going through the wilderness to make their way to the promised land, they're just cruising along, just minding their own business. And out of nowhere in Exodus chapter 17, they get attacked. And it's Amalek. The Amalekites, out of nowhere, began to attack them, God's people. And I'm telling you what, God got a little upset. If you looked in Exodus chapter 17, Exodus chapter 17, he says at the end of verse 14, after they won the battle, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. He's the guy that's going to take your place one day. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. I will blot them out so you don't even remember Amalek. Let me just ask a quick question. How many of you are related to an Amalekite? Anybody here? You see, it's God's word is so correct. See, there is no memory of Amalek. And he says this, and Moses built an altar. He called the name of it, the Lord, he called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. And look at this last verse. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. They're going to be a thorn in our side from generation to generation, and sometime God's just going to blot them out, and they're going to be gone out of history. You get to the book of Deuteronomy. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They're getting ready to go in the promised land. Moses' last words are written in Deuteronomy to tell the people, and he goes through all the laws, reviews the Ten Commandments, on and on and on, and then in chapter 25, he says, oh, and don't forget, God's going to blot out the name of Amalek. You just keep that in mind. And so... 550 years after that, you get to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and all of a sudden, there's the battle. King Saul is fighting the Amalekites. And when he fights the Amalekites, God tells him, don't spare anybody. But Saul, in his disobedience, took the king, whose name was Agag, and he spared him. And it was the beginning of a downward fall for Saul. Because he had disobeyed what God told him to do. And he let him live. Samuel, the priest, kind of stepped up and kind of did the job. If you read, it's a little descriptive. But he takes Agag and hacks him into pieces. So, kind of got rid of him uh, over there. And, uh, and so over 500 years have passed. And if you notice when they described who Haman was, they said Haman the Agagite. Haman the Agagite. That means 
tied to King Agag. That means coming out of that Amalekite group. And Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin. There were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. Benjamin. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Haman was an Agagite. Agagite. And the Agagites don't like the Jews, and they especially don't like the tribe of Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin don't like the Agagites. And here they are, 500-something years later, they're face-to-face. They just don't like each other. Do you understand what that's like? In this world of football, do you understand what that's like? It's like Texas and Texas A&M. They just don't like each other. It's like Florida and Florida State. They just don't like each other. And let's just bring it down home (laughs) to where we stand today. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Sanford and Furman. They just don't like each other. Woo! Man, you get those bulldogs and paladins together, it is, oh, it's, it's get it on on there. Well, these folks, they just don't like, they just don't like each other. And so, and so people asked the question that the interpreters and commentators to ask, because they said, well, why did he not bow down? Some will say that he just didn't like him. Maybe he was, it was a bad, maybe it was a bad time. Maybe Mordecai kept thinking, I'm supposed to get recognized for what I did, and then they promote this crazy evil guy, and I just don't like him, I'm not going to bow down. Second is people say he did it for religious reasons. Because what he had been taught in, in God's word is that you do not give glory to man that is due only to God. And so he will not bow down and, and pay homage. And the other is just the feud that they had that went way back. To me, my opinion, I think it's two and three. I think uh, there are records of where Jews bowed down to other Persians because it was court protocol. I think from Mordecai's standpoint, it was both a religious, but I also think it was, it was kind of the feud part too. But he was making a stand and saying, I'm not going to bow down, and I guarantee I'm not going to bow down to an Agagite. I'm not going to do that. And so, when all of this happened, Haman had to come up with a plan. He came up with an interesting one. In verse 7, it says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, the twelfth year of King Xerxes, they cast pure, which means they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, which all of that means absolutely nothing to 99% of you here. Let me tell you what he did. During those days, they would meet with magicians and astrologers to try to tell them sort of the future. And he met with these, Haman met with them to say, give me the optimum day that I can annihilate the Jews. And so they did what is called pur, P-U-R. It's like casting lots. It's like throwing dice. And they would do this over and over, and they would narrow down to where they thought was the best month and to where they thought was the best day. The month of Adar is the 12th month in a Hebrew calendar. Hebrew calendar starts around March or April. This would be around February or March. So he figured out the exact day that it needs to happen. And once he got that word, he then goes to the king. Verse 8, then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people scattered abroad. He never says Jewish people. 
There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, and their laws are different from those of every other people. Their laws are different than from every other people. He is correct. You know why their laws are different than from every other people? It is the only people who are monotheistic. It is the only people who says they have one God, there is one God, the true God, the living God, the God Jehovah. And the God that was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, that is the one God. And that's the only God they serve, and they're not going to serve any of the other gods, and they're not going to serve these emperors. And so what he says is, so that it is not to the king's prophet to tolerate them. That's an interesting way. It's not to the king's prophet to tolerate them. He says, they're just a headache, and it's going to cause you trouble. And I just want to let you know, it's not worth your time. It's not worth your energy to have these people constantly causing problems in your empire. I'll take care of it. And if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents. That's like millions and millions of dollars of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. They can put it in the king's treasury. I'm the number two guy. I've got you a great idea. You've got some pesky people that are causing you a whole lot of problems right now. It's just going to get worse and worse. It's not worth your heartache. Tell you what I'll do. I'm going to throw millions of dollars into the treasury. If you just let me get my band of folks, and we're going to go, and we're going to annihilate them and just be rid of that problem. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman the Agagite. The signet ring. What the signet ring means, when you kind of, um, it's like a notary. When you put that ring on a piece of paper, on a document, it carries all the power of the king. He gave it to Haman, and he said, draw up the documents, put the ring on it, make it happen. And then he said, um, and the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. And um, so there's the money. Now, some of the NIV says, keep, keep the money, I don't want to get into all the different commentators, but it's more of a, um, probably a Persian oriental thing to where it was a phrasing that bottom line, he still kept the money to put in the treasury. And you'll see this in chapter four, verse seven. And we also, when you get in chapter seven, so most likely the king said, we'll take all the money. You said, well, where did he get all this money? He, where he was getting the money, they were going to plunder the Jews. And as they went through and they killed them all, they were going to plunder all their stuff, and they were going to take all their stuff, they were going to put it in the treasury, and he projected it's going to be, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And he said, go about and do it. So in verse 12, it says, Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. So I'm just going to make up months for you because it could either be March, February, April, March. We're just going to go with March. Are you ready? Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of March. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and the governors over all the provinces, officials of all the peoples, to every province in his own script and every people in his own language. He made it as specific as could be. Everybody should be able to read this. In every language, over all 127 provinces, this is the message that you have. And letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, let's say February 13th, and to plunder their goods. And a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. This is just almost crazy. 
Because what happens is they send out this edict that says, on the 13th of February next year, 11 months from today, you, the people, can rise up and you need to kill any Jew that you see. Man, woman, child. Destroy, kill, annihilate them on that day. So it's not like he's sending all the armies in there. He's giving permission for their armies to do things, but he's just, if it's a neighbor of yours, you can go kill them. You need to annihilate them and get them out of there. And that was his plan. And in verse 15, it says, The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Whoa. Well, the question that, that you got to ask yourself is what has just happened? I mean, we're doing really good with Mordecai. Everything seems to be happening. And then all of a sudden, boom, this thing has just gone into a whole new, uh, a new place. I mean, how, how in the world can, can, this, can this take place? Well, when I read this, some things jumped out at me. And I, I think the, um, the thing that, that jumped out and you just kind of follow me on this one. In our world, we are always one person away from genocide. In our world, we are always, we're just one person away from genocide. Stay with me. You look in the book of Daniel. When Nebuchadnezzar was king, they built this 90-foot statue that everybody was supposed to bow down to. Three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three guys refused to bow down. They were Jews. They didn't bow. They had them arrested, and they threw them in the furnace. God saved them through the furnace, and that was it. All they were doing was they were going to kill those three men. They weren't going to kill all the Jews. Then all of a sudden, when Darius was king in Persia and Daniel was there, uh, they had some guys that didn't like him, and they set an edict that says you could not pray to any other god except to Darius. And they knew that every day Daniel would open up the windows and get on his porch and, and look towards Jerusalem and pray. And when he got the edict, took it, put it aside, went to his porch and prayed. You know what they did? They arrested Daniel, threw him in the lion's den. God saved him, came back the next day. When the king got upset at Daniel, he didn't get upset at every Jew and going to kill every Jew. Now all of a sudden you got a man by the name of Haman. Haman comes along, one man, a Jew, will not bow down to him. And you know what he says? Not only am I going to take out him, I'm taking out all the Jews. You say, man, that's crazy. Yeah, one man, genocide. I did research on the um, top, uh, top four genocides in the last hundred years. And every one of them, you could, or three of them at least, you can tie it to an individual. And um, you looked over in uh, Cambodia, and his name was Pol Pot, and it's called the Killing Fields. And Pol Pot in Cambodia wanted to build a force of just peasants that could rule. He didn't want, he didn't want the skilled people, the educated people, uh, to have their leadership. So he went through and systematically killed close to two million, two million of the most educated, most skilled people so that he could build this artisan uh, force of uh, this, excuse me, this force of just peasants over here. He killed about two million people. One guy, Pol Pot, did that. Stalin, in the 1930s in Russia, his 
his idea was to take all the land from the farmers and give it to the government. And a lot of the farmers reacted against that. And they said, no, that's not right. So what he did was he created a famine. He starved them out. Five to seven million were killed over about a two to three year span. Nazi Germany, World War II, 1938 to 1945, Hitler had a disdain for the Jews along with others, but mainly for the Jews. And over six, over those six, seven years, he killed six million Jews. You know, there's less than five million people that live in Alabama. That would mean in a span of about five, six years, every person in Alabama would be wiped out, plus some in Mississippi. And it was because of Adolf Hitler. He got me thinking, do you think there's anybody else in Germany that disdained Jews? Yeah, there were. There were anti-Semitics there. But the one man stood up and caused six million to die. Well, there are other people there in Cambodia that agree with Pol Pot? Probably. But it took one man to stand up to do the genocide. And when you think about what Stalin was doing in Russia, do you think there were others that said, hey, all the farmland needs to come to the government, but no one was going to sit there and take them all out? But Stalin did. Do you think that there were, in Persia, some people that were anti-Semitic, that didn't like the Jews for one reason or another? Yeah, probably were. But nothing had been done to them until one man, Haman, stood up. We were one person away from genocide. And we just need to always remember that, that there is evil in this world. And, that, um, and we just always have to keep our eyes and ears open on that. And i got to just mention this to you. This past week, I kept going over and over and over this passage. And out of everything in here, you want to tell you what was most disturbing? Verse 15. At the end of verse 15, it says, And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. They said that they just kind of sat down and they had a drink. They had just authorized the annihilation of an entire race of people. Over 127 provinces. And their response was, hey, let's get a drink. Let's get a snack. What a coldness. And at verse kind of sat with me for a couple of days, and then all of a sudden, it's almost as God just brought this to my mind, and um, it was it's kind of emotional even thinking about it, but to think about where we are as a nation, oh, and I left that out, didn't I? Didn't I say there were four genocides? Oh, I did, didn't I? And I just said three? Oh, the fourth one. Yeah, I'm sorry. It was at the top of the list. It was United States. Since 1973, 55 million pre-porn children have been killed. We topped the list. Sitting, having a meal. It was a video of Planned Parenthood, the largest provider and encourager of, of abortions, with people from Planned Parenthood eating their meal, talking to someone about baby parts, that could be taken from a mother's womb as they killed that child and took different parts and sold it to be a part of an $800 million industry. And they sat there, eating a meal, casually talking about it. That was hard. 
And we can sit here and we can point fingers at Pol Pot and we can point fingers at Stalin and we can point fingers at Hitler. And then we can sit here in a nation and allow this to go on time after time after time. And we put the same evil people in power and places of authority who support this and promote this barbaric act of taking lives for financial gain, who have no care of women, who are lying to women, misleading women, and having them being scarred physically and emotionally for the rest of their life. And we sit back and don't do anything on that. It's the evil of genocide. And when you read Esther chapter 3, you can't go home and just shake your head and say, well, that's back in those days. I don't know who, who, why anybody would do something like that here. We're doing it, and we're supporting it. And we're, and we're not just, we got over here, we can, we can blame people in our government, but then we are also to blame to where we don't speak up in our workplace. We don't speak up in our universities. We don't speak up in our schools. We don't speak up in our neighborhoods. We don't speak up in conversations. We just go home and have a drink, have a meal. And then all these people are in a state of confusion because of what we allow to take place. It's more than a government thing. It's when God's people just raise, rise up and they say, this is wrong and this is right, and speak up for it. Because when we don't, that's on our hands. That's on our hands. And we cannot sit there with a straight face and read through Esther chapter 3 and say, I don't know how a guy could do that. And we're doing it, we're allowing it, and we're supporting it, and we're encouraging it right here in our nation today. That's Esther 3. You say, wow, ends on a happy note over here, doesn't it? I'm going to give you two takeaways, as if that wasn't enough. And I know we're going a little long, but I want you to get them, because I think this is so important, especially for these young people. I want you to get this first one, right? This one right here. The first one is this. Who is speaking into your life? Who is speaking into your life? King Xerxes, in the first three chapters, has made three hugely monumental mistakes. What he did to the queen was wrong. The edict that he did where all the women have to, the husband have to respect their wives for whatever they want to do to them, that was ridiculous. Do you know why he did that? Because people that he surrounded himself with told him that's what he needed to do. This beauty pageant, this sensual pleasure thing where he violated all these young women, where did he come up with that idea? The people that were around him came up with that idea, and he said, yeah, that sounds good. Where did this genocide idea come from? It came from Haman, the guy that was number two. And the number two guy came and says, this is my idea. And Xerxes said, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. This guy's made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, and the question is, is who is speaking in your life? The writer of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, look what he says. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. Listen, I want to especially talk to you young people. Man, think about who you surround yourself with. You know, your parents always tell you, they say, don't hang around with the wrong crowd. You know why they say that? Because of one word, wrong. <laughs> it's, it's the wrong crowd, which means it's the wrong thing. And at your age, at any age, when we hang around with people who are going to take us the wrong direction, we have a tendency to go that direction. We may not go as fast as everyone else, but we'll end up finding ourselves getting taken in that direction. And you know what's so great? You get the choice. 
You get to choose who you're going to hang around with. You get to choose who your friends will be. You get to choose what directions you want to take. And Xerxes, the most powerful man, the most powerful man in all the empires, he made wrong decisions because he surrounded himself with wrong people. So this is for all of us, young people and for adults. Hang out with wise people, you become wise. Who is speaking into your life? Who's giving you um, direction and opinions? Who do you go to? You know, I just got to be real honest. The older we get as adults, when we have a question and we're trying to get an answer to it, oftentimes we know what's right. We will sometimes go to the person who will justify to tell us what we know is really not right, but we don't want to really hear the truth, so we go to this person. Because you've got people in your life that you say, don't go to that guy. He's going to tell you straight, or she's going to tell you straight. They're going to quote Scripture, and I don't want that. I want someone over here. Man, all you're doing is you're just heading in the wrong direction. The question is, is who is speaking into your life? And number two, the last thing is this. And the last point is the link in the chain. And this is the name of, uh, this is why we've titled our sermon over here. The second is that God is at work making even life's greatest disappointments a link in the chain of good things yet to come. Now, I want you to write this down, and this is going to close us out. God is at work making even life's greatest disappointments a link in a chain of good things yet to come. Now, as you're writing that down, let me just explain what we've just been Look at Mordecai, what a roller coaster. With joy, he sees that this orphan Jewish girl that he helped raise has become the queen. She has given him a job, which is a great job, and he's earned that job, and he's excited about it, and he's working it. He just foiled an assassination plan of the king. He's feeling good. Life is great. And then all of a sudden, boom, he makes a stand for his faith. Haman gets upset. When Haman gets upset, then all of a sudden, not only does Haman want to kill him, he's killing all the Jews. He said, whoa, how can this happen? How can this possibly happen? Where is God in all this? I mean, for sure, God's got to be over here hiding somewhere. What is he? Is he running away from us? No. He's hidden, but he's not hiding. And as you'll see over the next couple weeks, you'll see how God is taking every one of these disappointments, the disappointment of not getting awarded uh, some kind of reward because he saved the king's life, the disappointment of seeing this plan that Haman has and how God is over all of this and he's kind of moving some chess pieces along the way and it's going to be for God's greatest glory and it's going to be for their best good. God is at work making even life's greatest disappointments a link in a chain of good, time, good things yet to come. I want you to be encouraged as we walk out of here in that whatever it may be that you're going through, and, and remember ever how long it's been, and you just feel like I'm not getting the answer, some of those great disappointments can be a link in that chain of good things yet to come, and it's where you just got to trust God. I believe it was 1949 when they came into China, and they took the church and they said, no more church. And the church went underground. There were six million believers in China in 1949. Today, that underground church through persecution has grown to 160 million believers. And it's actually 160 million plus three. Could we just baptize three of them today? <laughs> Amen. Praise the Lord. God 
is making even life's greatest disappointments a link in a chain of good things yet to come. Let's trust him. Think about the link in the chain, where you are, what God's doing, and just know that, listen, he may be hidden, but he's not hiding. And he is there loving you, caring for you, but there are things that are shifting and moving around that is going to give him the greatest glory and it's going to work to your good, okay? Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that um, each of us will take the words that we've heard today and um, be encouraged. Be encouraged that you love us. Be encouraged that you're working with us, that your hand of providence is there. And, uh, and Lord, may we be people that are bold and we walk out of here. Because sometimes things that have happened in our lives have called us to back away, but maybe today has caused us to get bold and to step forward and say, God, uh, I, need to be, uh, I need to be more vocal for you. I need to be standing. And so, uh, Lord, I pray that that would happen to us and that uh, you would receive all the glory. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.